Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Wittivine. Happy to be here with you once again this week with the second part of a series on the perils of big tech. I began a few weeks ago this series by speaking about Google. And in this episode, I'm going to speak about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, one of the big tech giants, if not the big tech giant. It's been in the news a lot lately. A lot of controversy. Mark Zuckerberg has been involved in controversy in Australia with the sharing of news stories on the from Australian media. Uh, also, Project Veritas has come out with a video uh, from someone within the Facebook organization. And, of course, there's been a lot of controversy about censorship and about the way that uh, Facebook is dealing with so-called fake news. And much more dealing with Facebook. And and Facebook has become an important part of the daily lives of many people. And Facebook now has over 2 billion uh, users. And with over 2 billion users, you can imagine that, and you can, it's obvious that their reach is extremely broad in this world. And that's not just in North America but it's throughout the world. Over 2 billion people are accessing this service on a daily basis. And it's having an impact on the lives of these 2 billion billion plus people in so many ways. And the first thing I wanted to talk talk to you about was the, the algorithms and the importance of algorithms to Facebook. And we've already seen a bit of that with Google. Uh, but the algorithms and the way that the algorithms are used and what what is an algorithm and what is the importance of it and why does that make a difference when it comes to how we should think about Facebook, the social networks, but especially in this case, thinking about Facebook. An algorithm, a definition of algorithm from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Algorithm is a procedure for solving a mathematical problem as of finding the greatest common divisor in a finite number of steps that frequently involves repetition of an operation. And broadly speaking, it is a step-by-step procedure for solving a problem or accomplishing some end. And so there's a quote here with the use of the word, there are several search engines with Google, Yahoo, and Bing being the biggest players. Each search engine has its own proprietary computation called an algorithm, that ranks websites for each keyword or combination of keywords. And so the the search engines use these algorithms, and Facebook also uses these algorithms and has developed this this huge, absolutely massive program of, of using mathematical formula to direct the news, to shape the news, to shape what you see, to shape how posts show up on your feed, to shape how news shows up on your feed. And because of the use of these highly sophisticated algorithms, they have developed a, a system which is extremely powerful. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And to do that, I'm going to go through a couple of quotes from this book, which I already used in the previous episode on Google. Uh, the book is called World Without Mind by Franklin Four, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. And to begin, he says this about uh, technology in general and, and about the future 
of technology and the use of algorithms. And he said uh, that these algorithms very soon will, will guide self-driving cars and pinpoint cancers growing in our, our innards. Uh, but to do all these things, algorithms are constantly taking our measure. They make decisions about us and on our behalf. The problem is that when we outsource thinking to machines, we are really outsourcing thinking to the organizations that run the machines. So behind every machine is an operator. Behind every computer program is someone who develops that computer program. Behind every algorithmic program is a developer, is an organization, and in this case, it's Facebook. It's Mark Zuckerberg, it's the owners of Facebook and the investors of Facebook, as we'll see a bit later on. So the algorithms are central because so many people are relying on Facebook, not just for communication with loved ones, with family members, not just to reach a large audience, but also uh, to get their news, to have the information filtered through this medium uh, as their, in some, in some many cases, I'm sure, their sole source of information. So the algorithms are extremely important. And Franklin Four continues and says this. He says, Facebook would never put it this way, of course, uh, but algorithms are meant to erode free will, to relieve humans of the burden of choosing, to nudge them in the right direction. You're being herded by the use of these algorithms. You're being uh, put onto a pathway, and that pathway is the pathway that Facebook wants you to be on. Algorithms fuel a sense of omnipotence, the condescending belief that our behavior can be altered without our even being aware of the hand guiding us in a superior direction. There's always been a danger of the engineering mindset as it moves beyond its roots in building inanimate stuff and begins to design a more perfect social world. We are the screws and rivets in the grand design. So we've also seen this in the episodes about propaganda, and particularly what Jost Mirlu said, which we spoke about uh, last week, and the use of uh, technology or the view of the people who are trying to shape public opinion, who are trying to mold people's minds, who are committing the crime of menticide, as Jost Mirlu says, viewing the human being as a machine, as someone who can be driven in a certain area, in a certain direction, as someone who can be led to take certain decisions, who can be led to uh, develop certain opinions. And so that's what we see by the use of these algorithms. And a, a it's a type of manipulation, a very serious manipulation. And when we are a part of that great machine, the Facebook machine in this case, these algorithms have uh, a great deal to, to do with the choices that we make and the choices that we are led to make, the choices that the people who develop the algorithms want us to make. So Facebook is always surveilling users, always auditing them, using them as lab rats in its behavioral experiments. While it creates the impression that it offers choice, Facebook paternalistically nudges users in the direction it deems best for them, which also happens to be the direction that thoroughly addicts them. It's a phoniness most obvious in the compressed, historic career 
of Facebook's mastermind. And of course, Facebook's mastermind is Mark Zuckerberg. So in this, we see a paternalism nudging us in the direction that the corporation deems best, uh, which also happens to be the direction that addicts us. And the addiction part of it is extremely important because when we look at this timeline of key moments in the history of the Facebook algorithm, we can see in 2004, Facebook is born. Uh, 2006, the invention of the news feed. And 2007, this point is very important, the invention of the like button. And it seems really silly when you think about it, well, the like button, what's the big deal? You get the thumbs up, you get the like, you get the happy face, whatever it may be, uh, with various things being added on. The invention of the like button is actually an important part, an, an important milestone in the history of the development of Facebook. Because the like button is is like the is like the bell. Remember from last week, Pavlov's dogs? You ring the bell. And uh, Pavlov's dogs started to salivate because they, they associated the ringing of the bell with food. Food's coming. The bell rings. They know food's coming. And so they begin to drool. Well, the bell is, uh, the, the, the like button on Facebook is like that bell. And it, it leads us uh, subtly, but it does lead us. And uh, because it gives us gratification, you post something, you get likes. The more likes you get, the better it is. The better it is for your self-esteem. You feel better about yourself. Ah, a lot of people like this. And so it, it drives what gets posted according to who likes it, according to how many likes you get. And so that also has, a, has an impact on shaping the way that we do things subtly and perhaps without us even thinking about it, without us even realizing it as egotistical creatures, which we are. We like to be liked. And so to receive likes, well, that's a, that's a motivator. So 2007, the, the, the like button is invented. And so we see that, that psychological manipulation happening. Then uh, 2009, we see the invention of a sorting order for the newsfeed. And so that is the algorithm. So how the newsfeed gets sorted, what's viewed as being more important What's viewed as being less important? What's completely excluded? 2015, introduction of the see first feature. 2016, prioritizing content based on the amount of time a user spends with it. 2017, reactions are weighted more than likes. And so there's various reactions now that you can have. It's not just the like, but it's the whole reaction. And whatever those reactions are, that, that weights the what you're going to see and the choices that are made about what you see 2018 meaningful interactions update that is the prioritization of of posts that receive comments so another string added to the algorithm and finally on this list to 2019 uh, the introduction of the why am i seeing this post tool which explains ostensibly exactly why you see certain things uh, on your Facebook feed uh, if you're on Facebook. So this is a, a little bit of the key moments in the history of the Facebook algorithm from a site 
that I found that actually works to help people to build their presence on the social networks. And we can see there the, the development since the birth of Facebook, the things that have been added on, which are meant to keep the user uh, looking for, like, like, like the rat in the maze looking for the cheese, uh, meant to keep us going. To think of just a just a silly example, and this is something something that, uh, to my shame, I must say that that uh, I I was uh, <laughs> I wasted way too much time on in in the first years, my first years of, on Facebook, uh, a game like Farmville, and it seems really silly, but it's actually extremely serious what those kind of games do and what that has to do with the the wider more important issues of life. Games like Farmville, games like Angry Birds, games like Candy Crush, and how they manipulate people to do go one more step, to go a little further, to play a little more, to send a message to somebody, to send messages to all your contacts so that they can send you stuff. And then they end up doing the same thing. It's like a contagion. It's like a virus. And so... You end up getting manipulated because there's a there's a uh, an action that you take and then there's a response that you receive. There's an action and there's a benefit. Well, what's that benefit? That benefit when it comes to those kinds of things is, or when it comes to any of these things, really is uh, is not anything tangible. It's a benefit that you receive on the screen by means of people sending you things that don't really exist, you using those things in the game, uh, in the case of Farmville or, or uh, Candy Crush or any of those kind of games. And uh, you end up with nothing, really. But at the same time, you're being manipulated and, and you're being uh, directed and led in a certain direction. And that's that's an, a little example of what Facebook on the grander scale does. So let's uh, let's see a little bit about and and learn a little bit about Mark Zuckerberg. And for those of you who are watching on Rumble, I'm just going to share uh, the screen of the site with on biography.com, which talks about Mark Zuckerberg. And the story of Mark Zuckerberg is an interesting one. It's it's another one of those kind of mythological tales, and and I'm not sure how much is is left out of this story, but it's kind of like the story of Bill Gates. You know, when Bill Gates was young, he was this outsider who's working in his garage developing software, and and he develops this program, and and it's like it's almost like a rags to riches kind of story. Well, it turns out that story is completely mythical and uh, and is full of holes and uh, is a real distortion of the fact. So I'm not sure how much of this is uh, uh, is the case also with Mark Zuckerberg and with the development of Facebook. But just for interest's sake, just to talk a little bit about his uh, the origins of Facebook and where Zuckerberg comes from. Uh, who is Mark Zuckerberg? Well, he co-founded the social networking website Facebook uh, out of his college dorm room at Harvard. And he left college after the sophomore year to concentrate on the site. So he's, he's another a college dropout who made good. Uh, so uh, he was born in 1984 in White Plains, New York, into a comfortable, well-educated family. 
and raised in the nearby village of Dobbs Ferry. For our purposes, um, this uh, just for interest's sake, it's not really that important to what I want to say uh, today. Uh, so he developed an interest in computers at an early age when he was about 12. Uh, he used Atari Basic to create a messaging program he named Zucknet. And so that's the beginning. He got a, a private computer tutor. His, his parents hired David Newman to come to the house once a week to work with Zuckerberg. Uh, so it was hard, the teacher said, to stay ahead of this prodigy uh, who began to take graduate courses around the same time. He later studied at an exclusive preparatory school in New Hampshire Remained fascinated by computers, developed new programs, uh, created an early version of the music software Pandora, which he called Synapse. And so there were several companies that expressed interest in buying the software and hiring him, but he declined the offers. He had bigger and better things in mind. He enrolled in Harvard after a sophomore year, as we already heard. He dropped out to, develop himself, uh, to devote himself completely to Facebook. And so he invented, while he was in Harvard, he invented FaceMash, which compared the pictures of two students on campus and allowed users to vote on which one was more attractive, very classy. The program became wildly popular, but was later shut down by school administration after it was deemed inappropriate. So based on that, and on the buzz from that, a couple of his, his fellow students uh, sought him out to work on an idea for a social network site they called Harvard Connection. Zuckerberg agreed to help, but he soon dropped out to work on his own social networking site, the Facebook. And so he and a couple of his friends created the Facebook, and they ran the site out of a dorm room in Harvard until June of 2004. That's when he dropped out, uh, moved the company to Palo Alto, California. And by the end of that year, 2004, Facebook already had uh, a million users. So 2005, a venture capital firm gets involved, investing $12.7 million into the network, which at the time was open only to Ivy League students. Then they granted access to other colleges, high schools, international schools. By December of 2005, there's more than 5.5 million users. And so they attract more, uh, more interest from investors. But then we see that the creators of Harvard Connection claimed that Zuckerberg stole their idea. Again, we're seeing something that Zuckerberg has in common with Bill Gates. Bill Gates, someone else who used other people's ideas uh, and, and uh, in a less than ethical fashion in order to create his own empire. And it turns out that Zuckerberg did the same thing. Zuckerberg, of course, said that the ideas were based on two very different types of social networks, but lawyers searched Zuckerberg's records and found incriminating instant messages that revealed that Zuckerberg may have intentionally stolen the intellectual property of Harvard Connection and offered Facebook users private information to his friends. Well, Zuckerberg apologized. Uh, he said he regretted these messages, and he said, if you're going to build, going on, going to go on to build a service that is influential and that a lot of people rely on, then you need to be mature, right? He said in this interview with The New Yorker, I think I've grown and learned a lot. So what happened? What was the outcome? Well, there was initial settlement with the guys from Harvard Connection uh, for 65 
million dollars, which seems like a huge chunk of change. But when we think about the value of Facebook now, it's kind of uh, a drop in the bucket. So the, the legal dispute continued into 2011 uh, when the members of this Harvard Connection group claimed they were misled in regards to the value of their stock. So that's a little bit of the history of Mark Zuckerberg, a little bit of the history of Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg, the founder uh, and the main shareholder in Facebook. And now what I would like to do is talk a little bit about who owns Facebook. And we'll talk about the top five shareholders of Facebook from, from investopedia.com. Uh, talking about Facebook being the largest social networking site in the world, 2.5 billion monthly active users as of year-end 2019. So it's got to be higher than that now. So a little bit of explanation. We all know what Facebook is. Uh, and uh, about about the history now. So who are the shareholders in Facebook? Well, first of all, obviously Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg uh, is ranked seventh on the Forbes World's Billionaires list. He's got a net worth of $54.7 billion. He currently holds over 400 million shares of Facebook with a market value of around $82.2 billion. His holdings also give him a disproportionate share of voting rights. So he controls 57.9% of the total voting shares, which give him effective control of the company. So he's still the guy that technically makes the decisions. He's at least, uh, he's more than just a figurehead. He has the majority of the shares in the company, which means that he's the boss, not just in name, not just in name only, but in terms of his ownership of the company as well. But it also gets interesting to see who else owns uh, shares or the, 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 the rest of the shares in Facebook. First of all, we have the Vanguard Group. Vanguard, one of the world's largest investment management companies with about 425 low-cost traditional funds and exchange-traded funds. So they hold, these funds hold about 184 million shares of Facebook with a combined market value of about $37.7 billion. And then we have BlackRock Inc. And BlackRock Inc., we'll be hearing more about BlackRock Inc. because this is uh, one of the world's leading asset and investment management firms with approximately $6.4 trillion in AUM, which is the amount uh, of funds that they manage. $6.47 trillion. This company, BlackRock, if you've never heard of it, uh, look into it this company has a whole lot of power in this world. So the firm offers a wide range of mutual funds, iShares, ETFs, and closed-end funds. The iShares Core S&P 500 ETV uh, is among one of BlackRock's largest ETFs. I, I don't even know what ETF means, but uh, just look at the numbers. With approximately $180.3 billion in uh, funds that they manage. Their funds hold about 158.2 million shares of Facebook with a combined market value of 32.3 billion. So when we look at, and then there's FMR LLC and T. Rowe Price Associates Inc. as the other uh, main shareholders in uh, in Facebook. We won't get, we don't need to get into the details on those companies. But I particularly wanted to focus on BlackRock here because BlackRock is one of the most important companies in the world, one of the most powerful companies in the world. When we think about governments, 
when we think about the money that they control and the money that that uh, or the 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 influence the power that they have well blackrock in this world is is the equivalent of a world government so who's making who's making decisions who's making choices why are they doing that well in this case zuckerberg in uh, conjunction with these huge investment funds like blackrock which which has which manages 6.4 trillion dollars worth of funds and just think about that trillions of dollars so that that leads me back to the the issue of the uh, the algorithms what are these algorithms doing and who's behind the algorithms who's controlling the algorithms who's moving you in this direction and why what's their agenda what's zuckerberg's agenda as an individual and who's pulling the strings behind him what's blackrock's agenda and where are they wanting you to go if you're still using facebook these are the kinds of things that you need to think about you need to think about who is directing you who is leading you in this direction and why those are questions that must be asked those are questions that that we need to be asking about these uh, about these companies and about the services that they are offering to us so to return to zuckerberg and to what he is uh what he's up to with facebook uh i'd like to just go back to uh, world without mind by franklin four and i'm just going to switch here uh, back to a, a quote from world without mind he says facebook has a strong paternalistic view on what's best for you and it's trying to transport you there and then it quotes Mark Zuckerberg, to get people to this point where there's more openness, that's a big challenge. But I think we'll do it. He has reason to believe that he will achieve that goal. With its size, Facebook has amassed outsized powers. These powers are so great that Zuckerberg doesn't bother denying that fact. Well, of course he can't. In a lot of ways, he says, Facebook is more like a government than a traditional company. We have this large community of people and more than any other technology companies, we're really setting policies. So that's that's the amount of power that, that Zuckerberg knows that he has. That's power also that as users of Facebook, we are giving him. We are willingly doing that. So that idea of what's best for us. Well, what does he think is best for us? Well, it, it, it's not even for, for our purposes right now, it's not even that important to think about that, but just the fact that he has an idea in mind of what's best for us and he's able to shape uh, what we do and what we see to a great extent that what he thinks is best for us becomes what we receive and what we see. And so Facebook has an emotional and psychological power Facebook doesn't doubt it. It has bragged about how it increased voter turnout and organ donation by subtly amping up the social pressures that compel virtuous behavior. Facebook has even touted the results from these experiments in peer-reviewed journals. It is possible 
that more than 0.6% growth in turnout between 2006 and 2010 might have been caused by a single message on Facebook. No other company has so precisely boasted about its ability to shape democracy like this, and for good reason. It is too much power to entrust to a corporation. Again, this is from Franklin Fuhr's book. Too much power to entrust to a corporation. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. When you think of 2.5 billion people using this this service, 2.5 billion people being led and directed like sheep uh, being led to the slaughter, well, that's too much power for one man. That's too much power for one investment fund. That's too much power, period. Uh, especially when we think about the agendas that are behind this. And that's something that I'll also get into in a future episode, because when we think about Zuckerberg and when we think about his empire and compare that to Bill Gates, we know that Bill Gates has the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Zuckerberg has the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, which is very similar, which has a lot of the same leanings and a lot of the same uh, agendas, uh, which works with uh, genetics, with which works with eugenics, with which works with manipulating biology for its own purposes as well. And so, when you think about the money that Zuckerberg is earning and where that money is being channeled to, Zuckerberg is someone else who paints himself as a philanthropist, and in his philanthropy, he is also he also has a very specific agenda. So to support Mark Zuckerberg is to support his quote-unquote philanthropy. Now, another book that I wanted to refer to briefly as we draw this to a close is Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, Surveillance Capitalism, which is generally about the surveillance networks, the, the use of data by the big tech corporations. And she says this, she says, surveillance capitalism's products and services are not the objects of a value exchange. They do not establish constructive producer-consumer reciprocities. So it's not like you buy a bag of potatoes and you pay for that bag of potatoes and the person who sells the potatoes gets the money and you get the potatoes. Instead, they are the hooks that lure users into their extractive operations in which our personal experiences are scraped and packaged as the means to others' ends. And this is extremely important, and I want to emphasize this point. We are not surveillance capitalism's customers. Although the saying tells us if it's free, then you are the product, that is also incorrect. We are the sources of surveillance capitalism's crucial surplus, the objects of a technologically advanced and increasingly inescapable raw material extraction operation. Surveillance capitalism's actual customers are the enterprises that trade in its markets for future behavior. So we're being used. We're being manipulated. We're being directed so that the agenda is leading us in a certain direction. But in doing this, we are being used. Someone, somebody said to me, or somebody said actually on Facebook, uh, when I was still on Facebook, uh, that that MeWe, the an alternative social network, uh, charges six ninety nine a month, and that he wasn't unwilling to pay six ninety nine a month for that service when he could get it for free on Facebook. 
Well, always beware. I have this book on my shelf right behind me. Those who are watching the video can see that. It's called No Such Thing as a Free Gift. There is no such thing as a free gift. If it's free, it's really not free. It's free. You're not paying for it. But you, in the long run, you are paying for it. And you're paying for it with much more than just money. When 2.5 million billion people are being molded and shaped and formed and led in this way, we are in a in for a world of hurt. And that's why uh, a couple of months ago, I did leave Facebook. And uh, it wasn't an easy thing to do because it's, it's a way in which I kept in contact with a lot of people, uh, both in Brazil and in Canada and, and other places. And it was something that I used to uh, to post things, uh, messages and, and things to do with my ministry. But and so I've, I, in going to MeWe, I, I now have less than uh, probably about 5% of the contacts on MeWe than I had on Facebook, but I'm still happy that I did it. And if you're still on Facebook, I strongly encourage you to get rid of it, to to get out of Facebook. And it's not, it's, it's strange because you, you, you become really, the, the addiction aspect of it is, is very, uh, is, it's very strong. And the, the daily habit of checking Facebook, of looking to see what's new, of looking to see what other people have said, checking your likes, checking your responses, that daily habit, you need to get rid of that and you need to uh, leave that behind. And, and when you think about it, uh, it's not that important. Yeah, you're going to lose, I'm going to lose some, uh, some opportunities to, to contact people. Well, that's fine. Because I think in the grander scheme of things, uh, it's better for us or it's, it's infinitely better really for us to be ethical in our decision-making and not as pragmatic as we have been for so long, thinking about what works. Well, you need to reach all these people. So, so you may have to hold your nose a little bit. Well, no, you don't have to. You don't have to hold your nose and use that service, which is, I would say, uh, has, has uh, an evil impact on the world use that service. You don't have to hold your nose and use it because otherwise you lose contact because otherwise you can't get your message out. Otherwise you can't evangelize like you would like to. Uh, You can't reach those people. Well, that's too bad. You'll have to find another way to do it. And there are other ways to do it, including actual face-to-face contact with people, conversations, and uh, personal interaction. Uh, Surprise, surprise. That is still uh, the most effective means of reaching people with whatever message that that you're wanting to bring. So it's it's something that uh, I'm I'm passionate about that the the need to for us to consider the 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 purpose for which Facebook was created, the purpose for which it's being used, how we as users of Facebook. Uh, are being used and to what we are contributing. What is it exactly that our data is being used for? Because again, I believe I've already said this in another episode, but I, I want to reiterate this fact. It's not so much about my personal privacy. It's not about me saying, well, I've got nothing to hide, so you know, I really don't care if they have my data or not. It's about how that data is being used and that data is being mined and it's being used and it's being put into the the algorithms which are being developed more and more to predict and to lead and 
to, to guide and mold and form society in ways that I certainly do not want to see it being formed and molded. And so in Shoshana Zuboff's book, she continues on the same page and she says, consider that the internet has become essential for social participation, that the internet is now saturated with commerce and that commerce is now subordinated to surveillance capitalism. Our dependency is at the heart of the commercial surveillance project in which our felt needs, again, felt needs, felt needs doesn't mean actual needs. It means what we think are our needs. Our felt needs for effective life vie against the inclination to resist its bold incur- incursions. So we, 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 we make excuses and we have a conflict within ourselves. Well, we know it's not good. We know that our privacy is being invaded. We know that our, our information is being used, that our data is being used, that we're being tracked. But at the same time, we are getting benefits from this. And so Zuboff says this, this conflict produces a psychic numbing that inures us to the realities of being tracked, parsed, mined, and modified. It disposes us to rationalize the situation in resigned cynicism, create excuses that operate like defense mechanisms. I have nothing to hide. Or find another way to stick our heads in the sand, choosing ignorance out of frustration and helplessness. In this way, surveillance capitalism imposes a fundamentally illegitimate choice that 21st century individuals should not have to make, and its normalization leaves us singing in our chains. That's scary stuff. But I believe that's a reality, and I don't think there's an overstatement here. And that's why this is called the perils of big tech, because we have been led down this path over the past couple of decades uh, and we find ourselves here and we find ourselves being manipulated we find ourselves being used we find ourselves being directed uh, and and being used and turned into uh, cogs in the machine parts of the technocratic state and that technocratic state with with its uh, all-encompassing authority we see more and more and more developing more and more through the use of big tech and through also the combination or the the joining of forces of big tech and big government. And so for us we need to love freedom. And we need to we need to seek freedom. We need to seek uh to to fulfill our calling as people created in God's image not just cogs in a machine, but each one of us as unique individuals. And so my, my advice, my, my encouragement to you is to unplug from that machine. Unplug from that giant network. Get out of it because it's not worth it. And you may think, again, that you as one individual can't make much of a difference. And that's very true. You know, me leaving Facebook... Uh, Mark Zuckerberg isn't lying awake at night uh, w- worried about Jim Widevine who left Facebook. Uh, it's, it's, it's nothing to him. He's still got 2.5 billion people there. Uh, and, and me leaving or, or even a million people leaving probably isn't going to make that much difference to him. But our job, our calling is not to make a difference. Our calling is to be faithful. And so me as an individual leaving Facebook is me being faithful 
to my calling, not contributing to this system, not contributing to this technocracy, not contributing to this giant octopus, which has its tentacles in every part of life, which is manipulating society, which is manipulating the news, what we hear, what we can't hear, saying what politicians we can hear and what they can say about elections or about religion or about vaccines or about viruses or about pandemics. All of those things. We cannot allow ourselves to be manipulated in that way. We must leave the system. And so that's what I, in conclusion to this, uh, this part of the Perils of Big Tech series, would like to encourage. And I hope that the information that, that I've been able to share uh, in these last few minutes has been helpful to your thinking, because this is, an, this is another area in which we as Christians need to stand firm and take action. So until next time, it was nice to be here again, and it's always a blessing to be able to share these things and to speak about these things. And I pray that they are helpful to you. And if you found them helpful, please do share. Share the Rumble channel with your friends if you believe that it will be helpful for them. And also the Anchor podcast. If you're using Spotify, uh, get off of Spotify and use another server, use, an, use another provider. Uh, Spotify is also working on silencing voices and doing the same things that the other big tech giants are doing as well. It's hard to get away from, but we need to do our best and uh, we need to make those choices. So until next time, may God bless you and may God strengthen us and encourage us and help us and give us what we need to stand firm and take action.